Welcome to another Salvation by Grace message from Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are engaged in a verse-by-verse study of Paul's two epistles to the Corinthians. Now, let's join the congregation of GCA and our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I'm standing here this morning for one reason and one reason only, and that's because God is good. Amen. I pray that this morning God is lifted up, that Christ is exalted, that the saints are edified, and that sheep are fed. I'd like to introduce myself. I'm Jim McClarty. I'll be your guest preacher this morning. In a week... I will be leaving with Josiah, and we will be headed for New York. I don't think I'm going to miss any Sundays, at least I don't plan to, until I go to Columbus in September, and then Barney Johnson will be back here, which should make all of you happy, because I was very pleased and very thankful to uh, Barney and Tom and Micah for allowing me the freedom to go away to Texas for a week which was very good, very exhausting, but very good. So we're about to go to New York, and then I'll be here the following weekend, and then I turn around and go to Chattanooga. And then I'll be back for the following weekend. So that's kind of the schedule. Where shall we begin? How do I get your minds back into the Second Corinthians mindset that I think we had spent weeks building? Let's start here. Human beings very naturally have a tendency to complicate the gospel. And the gospel is, as Paul is going to say this morning in 2 Corinthians 11, the gospel has a certain simplicity to it, a certain purity to it. And Paul argues that it should not be mixed with other things. And the other thing that people most often mix into the gospel is some amount of legalism. Now, Paul is going to say, as we pointed out a couple of weeks ago, that the false apostles who had come to Corinth and were withstanding Paul's teaching, they were Jews, they were Israelites. Now, if you think about the law for a moment, if you think about Torah... And then if you think beyond that into the Mishnah, if you think about all the things that the Jewish rabbis wrote as they expanded on the oral traditions of the law, if you think about the Talmud, if you think about all of the stuff that was planted onto the religion of the Jews, it was by its very nature quite complicated. I mean, it starts with 613 rules. That's complicated. And it's everything from what you can eat to ceremonial cleansing to how you worship to how you sacrifice down to little things like not moving stones that designate borders and that you make sure to build a fence on the top of your house so that if somebody is on your roof, they don't fall to their death. So it goes all the way from the most simple to the most complicated rules and there's hundreds of rules to say nothing of the thousands that the rabbis added to it. And so naturally, first century Jews would think of their religion 
as complicated. It has to be complicated because it's God after all. And so their concept of God was a complicated God who had complicated rules that had to be carried out in a complicated fashion. And then Paul says, Christ. It's as simple as Christ. It's just Christ and his finished work. It's all a matter of grace. It's not a matter of your works. It's not a matter of your flesh. It's Christ and what he accomplished, and he perfectly and completely saved all the people who he intends to save. It's that simple. Now, that's a simple gospel that I can tell anybody. I can tell it to a Fortune 500 captain of industry. I can tell it to a child. I can tell it to a Vietnam vet in a wheelchair. I can tell it to anybody without having to change it, without having to modify it, without having to mold it or bend it so that it fits their particular circumstance. I can tell anybody the reality and the simplicity of the genuine gospel. Christ, there it is. He did it. There it is. Salvation is by grace. There it is. There, you've heard the gospel. That's it. That's it. And so naturally, when Paul would go into areas like Galatia, like Corinth, when he would go into areas and teach the simplicity and the purity of Christ and the sound doctrine that came with the reality of Christ and what he accomplished, naturally there would be others who oppose him who would come along and say, no, no, religion has to be more complicated than that. Religion has to include some amount of what you've got to do. We can't let you just do nothing. So we've got to tell you at least some things to do. If any of this sounds familiar, it's because even to this day, there are people, false apostles, claiming that Christianity is complicated and that you've got to do complicated things. And then they'll give you their list of what their complications are. And every list is different. And every denomination is different. Every church, every preacher has their list of rules that you've got to do. You know, there was an interesting insight as I was preparing to go to Texas to preach on sola gratia and soli deo gloria. I, I looked into some things that Luther had written about grace and the necessity of grace. But in the process of pulling out the quotes that I actually used, I came across something that I found genuinely profound. And the few people I've shared it with have said, that's a really good thought. Luther came to the point where in his self-flagellation, in his sleeping on stones and, and cold floors, in climbing up the Lateran Palace on his knees, in his constant doing of penitence in order to try to satisfy God, to try to pay for his own sinfulness, he reached the point where he realized that even when he was doing his best, when he reached the point where he thought, okay, I'm really genuinely keeping my flesh down and I'm really exalting God in the things I'm doing, he realized that that was a source of pride for him and that his pride was not humble egocentric. So he said, even when I'm at my best, doing my best, 
that feeds my pride. So it's sinful, which is very much like what Isaiah writes, that all our righteousnesses are filthy rags and that, that man in his best state is altogether vanity. So my point is, knowing that reality, that there's just nothing in our flesh that can possibly please God, and knowing that we just can't be good enough because every time we approach even slightly good, we get arrogant about it, which just feeds into our sinfulness again. Knowing that about ourselves, it can't be anything but grace. If anybody is saved, if anybody is redeemed, if anybody comes into the Father's eternal kingdom, it has to be because the Father did everything necessary for that person to stand in front of him and not be judged. It has to be grace, it has to be Christ, and it's that simple. Do you get it? Now, I did make the comment, and a couple of people in Texas did comment on it afterwards. I did say that, you know, people hear me say, it's that simple. Just believe. Just believe. Believe what Christ said. Just believe what the Bible has to say. Just believe in the finished work of Christ and believe that it is all grace. And that faith, that belief, is exchanged for righteousness, eternal righteousness is exchanged for that belief. And it's been that way ever since Abraham, back in the book of Genesis. This has always been the economy of God. God has always given people faith and then exchanged that faith for righteousness, grace, grace, grace. Right? And I tell people that, and they say, that's too easy. And my response is always, you think so? Try it. Try it, because we're human. Every time we get a hold of something that apparently easy, we want to complicate it. Well, yes, I I do believe in Christ, and yes, I, I do believe that it's all grace through faith. I do believe what the Bible says, but I better store up just a few good works just in case, because maybe it's a little bit me. And if it's a little bit me, I really ought to have a few good works stored. We're complicating it. As soon as we say, it's grace, it's faith, it's Christ, then somebody will say, and it's this. And as soon as they say that, or as soon as they say, yes, it's Jesus, but whatever they say after the conjunction, after the and, after the but, isn't what the Bible says. It's not Jesus and anything. It's not Jesus as long as you. It's Jesus, grace, faith, gifts from God, salvation from God. It's that simple. So now Paul is going to argue that the super apostles, this is a word he's going to use, The super apostles, he's using that word sarcastically against the men who have come and said that they're apostles that are better than Paul. It's hard to believe that anybody would think that they were better than Paul at being an apostle, but they are so self-promoting that Paul is going to sarcastically call them the super apostles and say that I'm not a whit behind them and that you've seen that demonstrated when I was among you. But he's going to say that those super apostles hit you in the face, 
steal from you. They give you things to do so you can make sure that you're good enough. In fact, let's take a look real quick. Paul's words are, for you bear with anyone if he enslaves you, if he devours you, if he takes advantage of you, if he exalts himself, if he hits you in the face. You put up with that. And to this very day, I see people putting up with that. I turn on the TV and I see these TV preachers with their rules and their ideas and their send me money and their chicanery. And they're, they're basically just slapping people in the face while they take advantage of them. And Paul says it's been that way for a long time. You can tell the false apostles by who are they lifting up. Are they lifting up themselves or are they lifting up Christ? And so Paul is really adamant here. Paul is really saying the simplicity of Christ has to be the soul and center of your Christianity. If it is not, then you have some kind of false gospel. He's even going to make reference again to another gospel, which he uses the word that we use for uh, its heteros. It's the word that has made its way into our language as hetero, heterosexual, opposite sex. So he's going to say it's not just another gospel. It's the opposite gospel. It's opposite the reality of what I'm here to tell you. And why is it opposite? Because you made it complicated. Because you added to it. And of course, the Jews, the Judaizers, would complicate the, the reality of Christ by adding rules. You got to tithe. You got to be circumcised. You got to be part of our group and not that group. So Paul is, is adamantly withstanding that. And that's what these last couple of chapters of 2 Corinthians are about. There, have I got you all back in the 2 Corinthians mindset? Yep. That's what I was trying to do. We're going to start reading at chapter 10, even though we're starting in chapter 11 this morning. But it's all so contextual that with any luck this morning, like I believe in luck, but nobody would understand me if I said, and with any providence, but we're going to try to get all the way to the first verse of chapter 12 because it really is just that contextual. So let's start reading at chapter 10, thus endeth the introduction, and now we can dig into the word. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I am not to be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some, who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh, for though we do walk day to day, he's saying, in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God 
and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I should boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not destroying you, I shall not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach you. For we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. Not boasting beyond our measure, that is in any man's labors. But with the hope that as your faith grows, we shall be within our sphere enlarged even more by you so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. But he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Chapter 11. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. But indeed, you are bearing with me. Okay, now what Paul means when he uses the word foolishness is that now that he has begun building his argument, he's now going to begin boasting. He's going to start saying, didn't I? I did all this for you. Didn't I, aren't I the one who did this for you? As opposed to the false apostles. Chapter 12, he's going to get into revelations and spiritual things. And his attitude's going to be like, what have they got? I got all this. What have they got to prove that they are actually apostles of God? So he's going to start boasting. But he keeps admitting, and you'll see it as we go through this chapter, he frequently says, I know I'm being foolish. I know I'm boasting. And all such boasting is foolishness, but sometimes it's necessary. So I'm going to boast about what I've accomplished. So I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. But indeed, you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I 
betrothed you to one husband, that is, to Christ, that I might present you as a pure or a chaste virgin. Okay, now this is part of Paul's background, his Old Testament background coming out, part of his Judaism. He's reaching back to the idea that the Israelites, when they chased other gods than Yahweh, that Yahweh referred to that as adultery, that God referred to Israel as his wife. And because they were married to each other, they should not have been committing that kind of adultery. God uses even more colorful words than that, but for sake of the children and Gladys, I will kind of, <laughs> a kind of walk around it circuitously rather than use the language because God uses harsh, harsh language to describe the adulterous affairs that his wife was having. In fact, let's take a quick look at it. Turn, if you would, for a moment to um, Hosea chapter 2. But Tom, you turn to Jeremiah 31, 32. Everybody else go to the book of Hosea for a moment. You know the book of Hosea. We've taught through the book of Hosea here on Wednesday nights. But basically what the book of Hosea is about is that God tells Hosea, a prophet, go marry a prostitute. Have children with her. So Hosea does. And then God names the children. Lo Amai, Lo Ruhama, Jezreel. Those names mean not my people and no mercy and scattered. Okay, now that's exactly what happened to Israel. That God finally reached the point where he had no more mercy on them. He called them not my people and he scattered them. But then God tells Hosea, now go get your erring wife. Because she had returned to her former occupation. So he says, go get her. Build a hedge around her. Keep her from her lovers. Take her back. And God says, that's erring Israel. I'm not just going to cast her off for good. I'm going to build a hedge around her. And I'm going to take her away from her foreign gods. And I'm going to bring her back to me. Here's what it says in chapter 2, verse 18 of Hosea. God speaking. Speaking about the restoration of Israel. In that day, I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from their land. And I will make them lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And then you will know the Lord. And it will come about in that day 
that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain, and to the new wine, and to the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, and thou art my God. Okay, so here's the picture. The picture is God has cast them off for their sin, but he's not going to permanently cast them off. He is yet again going to betroth them, going to marry them, and going to take them back to himself. The same thing that he had Hosea do. Now that implies, and in a minute, Tom is going to read it for us. That implies that originally God was married to Israel and considered Israel a wife. Yes, an erring wife. But he's not going to leave her in her erring state. He's going to have compassion on her. He's going to do all the work to bring her back. Tom, if you would, whatever I gave you, read it for us. This is Jeremiah chapter 31 beginning at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Though I was a husband to them. And he says, all the way back at Egypt, I was their husband. And so because he was husband to Israel, Israel should have remained faithful to their only husband, and instead they chased foreign gods, which he likened to an unfaithful wife, who he's not going to leave in her unfaithfulness. In fact, as we've seen several times in the Old Testament, God says that he's going to make Israel a virgin. He refers to her as a virgin, even though she has committed all of these harlotries. Okay, that's the language Paul has picked up here. He has now said to the church, to the Corinthians, remember in my introduction to the book of 1 Corinthians that I mentioned that the Corinthians had such a bad reputation that Corinthian actually became almost a swear word, and prostitutes were referred to as Corinthian girls. Because Corinth had that reputation. And yet Paul could raise up a church in Corinth and say, I have espoused you. I have given you to Christ as a chaste virgin. Well, what? Corinth was filled with temples to foreign gods. The vast majority of the people in Corinth had at one time or another chased after and worshipped foreign gods. And yet Paul could say, now that you've come to Christ, I can betroth you to Christ as a chaste virgin. And what he means by that is him and him alone. Not him and other gods. Not him and some amount of your fleshly works. Not him, but you got to do this. I have espoused you to the simplicity and the purity of Christ alone. And if you remain in steadfast love to Christ, then you're a virgin. 
Isn't that remarkable language, especially considering, and this is why it's important to us, especially considering that these are sinners. These are bad sinners. These are repetitious sinners. And yet Paul would say, if you're in Christ, those sins are washed clean. The old things have passed away. All things are made new. And no longer does God see you as a sinner, as an erring wife, as a follower of foreign gods, as an unfaithful, unstable person. He sees you as someone that he would give to his son in marriage. Wow. I mean, I have a daughter. You know my daughter. Sooner or later, some guy is going to say, I'd like to marry your daughter. And I'm going to say, I don't know. Uh, you good enough? I have a son. I love my son. <laughs> he almost got married. And I'm glad it turned out the way it did. And I think he's glad it turned out the way it did. But what I know for certain is my reticence was based on, are you good enough to give to my son? Can you marry my son, my only son, my beloved son? Are you going to treat my son right? Are you going to love my son? Are you going to are you going to support and build up the emotional needs of my son? Are you going to be able to do that? Because he's my son. Okay, that's just me. That's just measly little me. Jeff's at home one day. Paul walks in and goes, thinking about getting married. You laughed at that. You should not have laughed out loud at that. Yeah, what's, what's Jeff's first reaction? Who is it? Is she suitable for you? Who is it? Because fathers care who their sons marry. That's the point. Okay, so now God, holy, pure, righteous God. By the way, at that very moment, I happened to look to my left, and I saw Jennifer just look at Todd and go, <laughs> fathers care who their daughters marry and who their sons marry. Yeah. See, you thought I didn't see that. It's the greatest gift you can give your son. It's the greatest gift you can give your son. Now, also remember that first century marriages were very unlike marriages today, where the bride gets some say in the matter. Those were arranged marriages, and they were arranged by the fathers. And usually the wife came with a dowry just to make her a little more valuable before she became part of the family. These were arranged marriages, arranged by fathers. Okay, so now we're talking about God and Christ. God has arranged for his son to be married. And he has decided who he's going to marry his son to because it's an arrangement. It's something he decided. And so he is calling out to himself a church who he is then making sure is a chaste virgin. And the way that he is accomplishing that 
is by making them virginal, by declaring them virginal, by declaring them sinless, by declaring them spotless and holy and righteous. Only then can that church be good enough to be married to the king of kings. And so Paul says to this church, I betrothed you to Christ as a chaste virgin. And I just didn't want you to miss how genuinely valuable that language is. Because if you want to look at me, neither chaste nor virginal, nobody laugh, especially you. <laughs> but that God would see me and not see my sin and not see my rebellion, but that he would see his son in whom he's fully satisfied and then he would utterly forgive me and take Christ's righteousness and put it on me so that I am good enough to be married to his son. You look at the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, what do you read about? The marriage supper of the Lamb. When the church is all gathered, when the bridegroom, Christ, comes back to get his bride, the church, and takes them away off the planet and takes them to his father's house, and then has a marriage banquet with them. And you get to be part of that. You get to be in that despite you. That nothing you can do can change that because it was arranged by the Father. And that again is why I keep saying don't complicate it. Don't make it more difficult than that. Here's what Paul says. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, not a human jealousy, not green envy, not the kind of jealousy that makes people ugly. It says God is jealous for his own name. You read that in the Old Testament. Godly jealousy is God desiring, wanting, and demanding what is his. And so Paul says, I'm jealous after you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband that to Christ I might present you as a chaste or a pure virgin. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of Christ. That's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that maybe, maybe you've been deceived. Maybe you've forgotten how simple and pure the reality of the gospel is. Maybe you've bought into the idea that it needs to be more complicated or that you need to do more good works or you need to be circumcised or you need to do something to show your dedication to God or follow some aspect of the law. That, that I'm afraid that your deception isn't just natural human deception. I'm afraid the devil himself has deceived you. And how does the devil operate in deceiving people away from the simplicity of Christ? He does it by putting preachers in pulpits who don't tell you the truth. Paul's going to say that. He's about to say it. He's about to say that Satan comes as an angel of light. Satan doesn't come looking like you see on the wrappers of deviled ham. He's not coming with a forked tongue and a pitchfork and a tail and goat hooves and he's all red and he, and he shows up at your bedroom at night and goes, yeah, you know, don't, 
don't brush your teeth. You know, I mean, he's not, <laughs> it's not what the devil is like. The devil is a thing of beauty. Remember why he fell? He fell because he was raised up in beauty, in pride, self-love. That was the reason for his fall, because he was impressed with how beautiful he was. And so Paul says, he's coming as an angel of light. When he comes, he's not going to deceive you blatantly and outwardly. He's going to deceive you surreptitiously, the same way that he deceived Eve. Didn't God say you can eat of any tree, any fruit? Didn't he say that? I mean, that, that's just subtle, which is why the serpent was more subtle in the garden. The serpent isn't going to come and say, deny Christ. The serpent's going to say, sure, yes, Christ, yeah. But then you need a little bit of this, and you need a little more of that. And Christ isn't really enough. In fact, in fact, if I were you, I'd be a little scared to throw myself out into eternity on the bare thread of the promise that Christ is sufficient. I think you better build up a little bit of good works. I think we better take the theology of the Bible and add a little bit of human philosophy to it. We need a little intellectualism to go with our Christ. I think we ought to expand the Christian notion until it becomes a social gospel, until it can kind of cure all the world's ills. It's necessary to do that. See, these are all ideas that are being promoted in the church today. But they're all ideas that are the subtle taking away from Christ. Look, if I was going to shoot an arrow and hit Josiah back there, he's sitting way back there, and his eyebrows just went way up. <laughs> if, if I was going to stand here and shoot an arrow, I didn't bring a bow and arrow, so don't I have a crossbow. And so that's a long way away. He's a long way. If I was going to hit that target... I better be dead-on accurate to make the target. If I move that much, did you see how much that was? Because I can see it. If I move that much, I hit his dad. Or, or, or it goes right between the two of them and hits the front door. Because it only takes a little bit to miss the mark. And the word for sin, hamartia, means essentially Miss the mark. The devil's not going to try to get you to go from here to there. You're clearly going to miss the mark over there. He's going to try to get you from here to here. You see the difference? It's subtle. It's small. But it's complicated. It's complicating the gospel. It's adding something to the gospel of Christ. And so Paul could say, that's not just human error that's demonic that's devilish here we'll let him say it I am afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity to Christ for if one comes and preaches another Jesus I told you earlier that's heteros that's not just another Jesus of the same kind or the same type. It's an opposite Jesus. 
It's a different Jesus. If someone comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, same word, opposite spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, same word, heteros, an opposite gospel, which you have not accepted, then you bear with that beautifully. Paul, you can hear his exasperation. He says, I've come and told you the truth. I've told you the very words of life. I've told you how to live eternally in God's presence. I have preached to you the pure, simple, true gospel. But if somebody comes along later and says, yeah, I understand the Paul thing, but let me add a little something. Let me correct something. Let me change something. And those are leading to a different Christ and a different spirit and a different gospel. He says to the Corinthians, you put up with that. You put up with that fine. Here, try this. Walk into your typical church. Up the road, pick one. Walk into your typical church and say what we believe here. It's God. It's all God. It's all grace. It's grace through faith, finished work of Christ, God predestined people before the foundation of the world. God elects. God chooses. It's all up to God. God's the arranger of everything. How long are they going to listen to you? Not long at all. Pardon me? Till you say election. Till you say election, huh? Yeah. Now, as soon as we get done proclaiming what the Bible actually says, what are they going to say? They're going to counter with a different gospel. They're going to counter with a gospel that is steeped in their tradition. And their tradition is going to make void the word of God, just like tradition always does. And they're going to counter you with, well, we believe some of that, but... And then they're going to add the buts and the ands and all the other stuff. Paul says, the gospel is simple. It is pure. Anything else is a different Jesus, a different spirit, an opposite gospel. And people put up with that just fine. They're good with that. You can fill giant arenas. Oh, it's a good thing I can edit, because I almost used a, a pretty mean adjective. But they'll fill arenas to put up with the junk that Joel Osteen's putting out. And I only picked him today because he's a good example of it. When was the last time you saw Joel Osteen talk about anything important out of the Bible? Never. He's preaching a social gospel. And that is, by definition, a different gospel, a hetero gospel. For I consider myself, says Paul, for I consider myself not to be in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. Okay, that's the, the one Greek word that is translated as most eminent. It's a combination of lien, which means very much, much more, exceedingly. And then you know this part of the word, the hooper part, it's made its way into the English language as hyper. 
I mean, if you, if you got a kid that can't sit down, we call them hyper. If somebody wants to accuse us of being um, beyond Calvinism, what do they call us? Hyper-Calvinists. That word, Hooper-Leon, is the word that I earlier was making fun of and said it means super because combined it means way, way above, very much exceedingly above. So Paul has combined these two words to come up with a word that means super apostles. And so I think he's saying it sarcastically. He's saying, I'm not the least bit behind the super apostles. Because apparently these false apostles, as you just read, have said things like his letters are good. But his appearance, eh. And uh, his speech, contemptible. We really don't like him. But listen to me. I look good. I'm a good orator. I can tell you things. So here's Paul's reaction to them. Even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. So Paul is arguing when I was with you, when you were seeing miracles, when you were receiving the Holy Spirit, when you were speaking in tongues, when there were healings, when there were, when there were gifts of knowledge, when, when these gifts of the Spirit came among you, did it come because of the super apostles? Or did it come because of what I was preaching to you, the simplicity of Christ, which was demonstrated in power? Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge. Okay, we've talked about this several times as we've been working through the Corinthian letters. Paul, while he was in Corinth, did not accept any money or any support from the people in Corinth, which has led some to say, well, then all pastors should at very least be bivocational or they should not take any money from the church. They should work because, after all, Paul worked. Now, the reason that Paul didn't accept any support from them and is going to argue, I'm going to continue not to take support from you, was because of the super apostles who, he said, are taking advantage of you. And I don't want to be likened to them. I don't want them to be able to say, well, sure, we're robbing you because Paul does. And so instead, Paul is going to say, I received my support from other churches. That's why I didn't take any money from you. So if you read the whole argument, there is no argument here against pastors receiving remuneration. So here's what Paul's argument consists of. He says, did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge. I robbed other churches taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia... They fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you, and I will continue to do so. So it's very, very clear 
where Paul got his support, other churches. But in Corinth, with the super apostles coming in and taking advantage of people, Paul said, I'm not going to do that for your sake. I'm going to humble myself so that you're lifted up. What were you going to say, Johnny? So when you said he did not accept from them, did they offer it to him and he turned it down or he just didn't ask for it? It appears that he never even asked for it, but then he boasts about the fact that he never asked for it. He did expect them to raise an offering for the poor saints at Jerusalem and that he was going to come and take up that collection so that he could take it to Jerusalem. And even in that, he was careful to say who was going to travel with him, which approved brethren, so that everybody knew that it was all on the up and up. Paul wasn't going to enrich himself from that offering. But the way that Paul was able to say to the Macedonians, I'm not going to ask you or take anything from you, was that he was getting support from the other churches of Macedonia. So he was still being supported by the church, is the point. Yes, sir, way back there. I can't hear you, Duane. Can you explain the word God? Yes, I think he's using it, again, in a sarcastic way. The same way that he's accusing the super apostles of robbing the church in Corinth, He's now saying, okay, if that's the way you raise money, well, then I robbed from the other churches. And I also think he's saying, by the way, the fact that they sent money to me in Corinth so that I could continue my ministry in Corinth, and they didn't get the direct benefits of my being with them, because remember, wherever Paul was, there were these outbursts of miracles and things, and People were aligned with the truth. There was great benefit to having Paul in your midst. And yet, they were supporting him in Corinth and not getting any direct benefit from that. And so I think that's part of why he said, I robbed other churches. Good question, though. So when I was present with you, verse 9, and I was in need, I was not a burden to anyone for when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you, and I will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. That's the area of Macedonia. So my boasting about not taking anything from you won't be stopped. I'm going to continue to do that. Why? Verse 11. Why? Because I don't love you? God knows I do. That's the essence of Paul's argument. I have loved you so much. I have sacrificed for you so greatly. I have brought you the truth of God in Christ, and I've done that at great peril. The end of this chapter is going to be the amount of peril that he has lived with in order to come as far as Corinth in order to bring the gospel to these people who had never heard it before. And he says, I went through all of that and wasn't a burden to you. Why would I do all that? Because I don't love you? Of course I love you. Which implies that these super apostles were saying, yeah, his letters are good, but they're terrifying. He doesn't love you. Yeah, his letters are good, but they're too strong. If he loved you, he wouldn't talk to you that way. If he loved you, he would just tell you 
that you're fine and you're good and you're all right and God loves you and get busy, do some work and, you know, God will be pleased with you. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Exactly. Which I would have loved for Jesus to say to the 12 apostles. So, yeah. But what I'm doing, verse 12, but what I'm doing, I will continue to do that I may, here's the point, here's why he's doing it, here's why he's not taking any remuneration from the Corinthians, that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. In other words, Paul is saying, I don't want to be like the super apostles. They've abused you. I don't want to be the abuser. So I am not going to take anything from you. I'm going to be no burden to you. I'm going to take care of myself even though I've suffered greatly, even though I've brought you the truth. I did all this to prove to you how much I actually love you or I wouldn't be doing this. Verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers. Oh, 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 not just slightly in error. They're deceitful. I'm surprised when I talk to other preachers, pastors, non-Calvinistic, non-reformed folk, I'm surprised how many of them claim to be well-versed in reformed theology. And as they talk, you can hear that they've only got, they've only been inoculated with enough of it to not catch it. But they, but they don't really understand it. They don't really get it. But they claim to be, they claim to be familiar with it, and that's why they're against it. And I can't help but think, well, then, if you're familiar with it, and then you reject it, that's deceitful. Because you know what the word says. You know what the Bible says. You've read Ephesians 1, supposedly. You know what the Bible's getting at, but you reject that, and you never preach that. Because it won't play well to your congregation. Let me tell you a quick story. Sure, why not? Are we bored yet? No. Are we too hot yet? No. Okay. I haven't talked here at GCA for a couple of weeks, so I'm only going to go for about three, four hours today. So don't worry. Thad's girlfriend, it's a joke. That was completely a joke. She looked panicked. Yeah. I'm sorry I don't know your name. I just categorized you as Thad's girlfriend. I'm sorry about that. Her name is Brenly. Everybody say hi to Brenly. Hi, Brenly. Hi, hi, Brenly. Okay. She waved back. This suddenly became an AA meeting. I'm not sure what happened there. I don't know what's Okay, so the place where we met this past two weeks ago was in Terrell, Texas. And it was a Baptist church, big Baptist church. The auditorium that we met in, big auditorium, beautiful facility. Lights, sound, all the gizmos, all the projection screens, all the stuff. Beautiful building. And uh, the pastor of that church was one of the men who preached at the conference. Apparently, from what I understand from Greg Wren, he went right from atheism to reformed thinking. Wow. It's astounding. Yeah. 
So he became the pastor of this church in Terrell, Texas. I keep emphasizing big church. In fact, when you walk into it, there is a chapel that seats about as many people as we are. And then you keep walking past classrooms and stairs and everything else, and you come into the big auditorium. Okay. Because he became the pastor of that church and started preaching Reformed theology, from what I understand, they are now so small as people have left that congregation that they don't even meet in the big auditorium because they can't afford to keep the lights and sound and air conditioning going. They meet in the little chapel every Sunday because once he started preaching genuine Reformed theology and people understood what he was saying, they ran out the doors. But he didn't change. He stuck to his guns, and good for him. So my point in bringing that up is that's a good example of a man who came to the truth and then stood on the truth. When people are familiar with the truth and then reject it, Paul says that that is a denial. It is deceitful working. It's not telling the sound doctrine that is good for men's souls. It's not telling them that Christ has done everything, Christ is all, and that through the Spirit of God, you are sealed for all eternity because God is the one who arranged this marriage. They're not telling you that. They're telling you, you got to get busy. You got to do some work. You got to make yourself good enough. They are deceitful workers, and they're disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. That's what Paul says. They're not really apostles. They're false apostles, and they're disguising themselves as apostles. And then look at verse 14, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. When Jesus began his ministry right after he was baptized, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil for 40 days. And do you remember how Satan tempted Jesus? With scripture. That's deceptive. My voice just cracked at that moment. That's deceptive. He says to him, well, well throw yourself off this high spire because it's written. He's going to send his angels to bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. So do it. And then Jesus answers with scripture. It's written, you're not going to tempt the Lord your God. So Satan hits Jesus with scripture. Jesus counters with right scripture. Put back in the right context. So my point of bringing that up is Satan, who disguises himself as an angel of light, isn't afraid to quote scripture to you. He's not afraid. I mean, he, he quoted scripture to the very word of God. There's nerve. If he's willing to misuse, malign, slightly twist, misapply scripture to Jesus, you don't think he'll do that to you? No. He'll do that to you in a heartbeat. Because remember what he's trying to do from here to here. He's just trying to pull you off track just a little bit. And Paul says this is not just a human frailty. This is satanic. 
Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And it is not surprising then, verse 15, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. So, are there men standing in pulpits? Speaking for the devil? Yes. Yeah, there just is. And Paul says so. And yet there are people who say that they are sold out to Christ. I love Jesus. They're willing to sing the songs, do the dances, go to the camps, buy the t-shirts. They're willing to say, ah, Jesus and me, it's a real good thing. I wear them like a t-shirt. My t-shirt tells you I'm a Christian. Clearly, I'm sold out to Jesus. And they will sit down in church and they will listen to deceptive liars deceive them away from the truth of the gospel into a hetero gospel. And I don't understand it. I'm, I'm flummoxed by it. I don't understand why they do that. The only explanation I have is that they just don't know the word of God well enough and their teachers are not teaching them the truth. Their teachers are teaching them either they're incapable of teaching the truth or they are deceptive liars who are purposefully trying to gain people to follow themselves rather than follow Christ. And we see it constantly. So Paul says, therefore, it's not surprising that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. Now, again, I say, let no one think me foolish because he's going to boast some more. But if you do, if you do think I'm foolish, then receive me in my foolishness that I may also boast a little. That which I am speaking, I am not speaking as the Lord would, but as in foolishness in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to their flesh, the super apostles would boast about their flesh, how good they look, how well they speak. Since many are boasting according to the flesh, I will also boast. For you, being so wise, that's real sarcastic, isn't it? Which, by the way, one of my most godlike qualities right there. I keep pointing that out. Sarcasm is, I get it right, well, anyway. For you, being so wise, bear with the foolish, the super apostles, you bear with the foolish gladly. He just said you put up with it beautifully. You accept this stuff. And, and even worse, you accept this stuff after I've told you the truth. After you know what the truth is, you're putting up with this stuff that is deceptive, that is a heterogospel. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you, being so wise, bear with the foolish gladly. For you bear with anyone if he enslaves you. Notice that Paul does not say, they're just enlightening you. They're just giving you more gospel. They're just giving you a little something extra that you can add to your faith in Christ. They, they mean well. No. He says they enslave you. Get this right. Legalism <coughs> enslaves you. Amen. 
Have you ever lived with any rule that you know isn't in the Bible, but the church imposed it on you? And you go through the rest of your life, or at least some portion of your life, thinking you got to do that? Because that's what we do in our church? Because that's, that's not in the Bible anywhere, but it's just something that they expect of me. Well, then you are a slave to that thing. That's why Paul talks about there's no law against me, but not everything's good, not everything is edifying, and I won't be enslaved to anything. As soon as someone imposes a rule, a law, and anything on you, you're enslaved to it. Okay, now I'm going to be controversial for a minute, as if I haven't already been. So somebody says to you, you meet for church on Sunday, and we meet for church on the Sabbath. Because we believe in keeping the Sabbath rules, not because it's in the law, but because we're trying to show God how much we love him, and so we keep the Sabbath, but you should be keeping the Sabbath too. Okay, now it went from we just do this because we love Jesus to you ought to do this too because clearly we're right and clearly you're wrong. And so you should keep this out. Okay, what are they admitting to you? They've been enslaved by the Sabbath rule. Our church believes in tithing. What, your church doesn't believe in tithing? How do you get anything done? Our church believes in tithing. Really? You're a slave to the tithe? You systematically give 10% of everything to your church, and you're still not tithing because the Bible says 30% in the Old Testament. Do you see how easily people become enslaved to things? In our church, women don't wear pants. Uh, That knocks about half of you women out. In our church, men wear ties. The guys are out, including me. In our church, we don't put holes in our ears. Okay, that that was okay. (laughs) In our church, see, as soon as I say that, if you accept those rules, I enslaved you. I placed my rule on you and made you feel the compunction to follow it. I have enslaved you. And I haven't enslaved you to anything in the Bible. I've enslaved you to my rules. And Paul says, that's what the super apostles are doing to you. They've enslaved you. And if he devours you, what does that word devour mean? Eat you up. Eat you up. Chew you up and spit you out. Or chew you up and swallow you, ingest you, until you become part of them. They devour you. If he takes advantage of you, if he cheats you, if he's taking advantage of your willingness to follow, if he exalts himself instead of exalting Christ, if he tells you, I'm the important one. I saw a guy on TV one year. A couple years ago, I won't say his name, maybe. Um, in fact, I won't say the name till afterwards. He was announcing that it was his 50th birthday. And because it was his 50th birthday, this is on television, he said that that made it the year of Jubilee. <laughs> 
jubilee every 50. So he decided that's the year of jubilee. So this year, for my birthday, if you send me a gift of at least $1,000, I can guarantee that God is going to bless you abundantly this year of jubilee because, because in the year of jubilee, everything returns back to its rightful place so all the things you've lost the erring children who have wandered away from God or the the things that you've been cheated out of and that you've lost those things are all coming back to you this year if you give me a thousand dollars because it's the year of jubilee and people fall for that amazing talk about exalting themselves okay it was Rod Parsley are you surprised no, and his brother Elvis. Elvis Parsley? Never mind. <laughs> Craziness. They exalt themselves rather than exalting Christ. And then Paul says, and if he slaps you in the face, if he hits you, that's what he's essentially doing. He's taking advantage of you. He's cheating you. He's telling you a false gospel, and you put up with it. You bear with the foolish gladly. Now, verse 21, to my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. I think that's more sarcasm. He says, yeah, it's true I'm weak. We're weak in comparison to the super apostles. And I say that to my shame, that yes, we've been weak around you. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Parenthetically, I speak as if I'm insane. Paul realizes he's boasting like crazy. And he just wants you to know he gets it. He's foolish in doing this. Are they servants of Christ? I'm more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That was outside the walls of Lystra and he was left for dead there. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, in dangers from robbers, in dangers from my countrymen, in dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from such external things, you'd think that was enough, right? After that list, you'd think he had put up with enough. He then says, and apart from those external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. He's taking care of the churches as these super apostles are coming in and deceiving people. He's writing letters. He's visiting. He's making his missionary journeys over and over again. And with every journey comes these perils and these dangers that go with it. And he puts up with every part of it because of the commission that has been given him by Christ. Verse 29, who is weak? 
without my being weak. I think what he's saying there is he's talking about the weaker brethren. Who, who, when I'm with them, if they don't have the freedom I have, what do I do? I humble myself down to them. Who's weak and I'm not weak with them? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? So if it's a weaker brother who doesn't have the freedom, I'm weak with them. If it's somebody caught in sin, I call it out and I'm concerned for their well-being. And I do all of these things. Why? Verse 31, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. Verse 30, which I skipped, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. For God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. Look, in Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so I escaped his hands. Paul's saying, danger, danger, danger. My whole life has been hardship and danger ever since Christ chose me to spread this gospel. Do you think I would go through all this to lie to you? Do you think I'd go through this kind of hardship to bring you a fabrication? At some point, Paul would have said, stop beating me. We made it up. At some point, he would admit that, that this is a fabrication. But no, instead, he says, I went through all of this because I am commissioned. I have been given this ministry, and I'm going to knock myself out to bring the gospel as far as I can to places where it's never been heard before so that God is exalted, so that Christ is exalted. Chapter 12, verse 1, we made it. Boasting is necessary. Apparently, they made it necessary for him to have to boast. Though, he says, it's not profitable, but you drove me to it. You made me have to boast about myself, but wait, he's not done. But now I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. And that's where we'll pick up next week. He's not finished in his boasting. It's not just about the physical hardships he's gone through. And it's not just about the distances that he has traversed to prove how much he loves them. And it's not just about the mental pressure and care of the church, the whole church, the church in the Middle East. He had the care of all those churches collectively. And, and he hasn't even gotten to, I know a man who went to the third heaven and heard things that it's not even right to speak about. Can any of your super apostles compete with that? So that's where we're headed next week. I went a little long. Thanks for your patience. I hope nobody got bored. But the word of God is endlessly fascinating to me. Did he just say he was bored? Is that what happened? Did he admit that he was bored? He's hungry. Of course, we're all hungry. I've told you about my new diet. I'm really hungry. Okay. I've preached longer before? My friend. I'm so glad you were here. I'm so glad someone would point out the obvious. 
that I've preached longer before. But not while we were here. But not while you were here. But did you enjoy it? Yes. Yes, sir. You got your hand up. We will in a minute. They're not gone yet. In a moment, they'll be gone. By the way, Robert and Becky are part of the Internet congregation, so if you want to say goodbye to them, you, you can go ahead and do that. All right, then. Questions? One, one thing. The Corinthians kept embracing the super apostles because defining righteousness by rules is easy. Yeah, I think Defining that's right. Defining righteousness by the indwelling spirit of God, um, that's hard because that goes against yeah. our flesh. That's why I said earlier that when people say to me that's easy, I say, yeah, try it. Because yeah. it's tough. It's hard to do. So anywhere that the gospel goes out, there are going to be these super apostles, these super messengers yeah. who are going to go out with this hetero gospel gospel yeah. I, I don't want to call it a gospel because those are good words well a, Paul did so as long as you put hetero on the front okay. you're okay <laughs> they're going out with this opposite no matter where we go with this truth yeah. we're going to confront this opposite you know Paul talks about the fact that we all ought to say the same thing once he has declared what the gospel is we ought to say the same thing and he uses the Greek word homologeo which has homo, same, same words. We ought to be saying the same words as opposed to the hetero Christ, the hetero spirit, the hetero gospel. Yeah. Anything else? Do you want to say anything about Paul? <laughs> I want to hear it. No, okay. I just wanted to check. Um, I thought you were talking about caution yesterday, um, and the meme was that grace didn't save Noah, obedience did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and yet you read, you read very specifically that the reason God called Noah in the first place, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It says it very specifically in the book of Genesis, and yet people will turn that into a works gospel. Amazing. And as I keep on saying, and I think Noah is a perfect example of it, do we work? Yes, but do we work to get grace or do we work because we've received grace? That's why Noah worked, not so that he could establish his own righteousness, but because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. All you got to do is read the Bible. It's real plain. It's just right there in front of you. But then again, I don't get my theology from Facebook memes. So there it is. Too many people do. Too many people do. All right, now's your moment. Say goodbye to the internet people. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace. <laughs>